Welcome back to the COVID-19 Health Equity Dashboard Podcast. My name is Gail Saban. Today we'll be talking about COVID-19 among younger people with Dr. Maria Sundrum. Dr. Sundrum is an infectious disease epidemiologist and postdoctoral fellow at ICS in Toronto, Canada. She specializes in respiratory virus epidemiology and vaccines, including those against influenza and COVID-19. Dr. Sundrum, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and the work you've been doing with regard to COVID-19? Sure. So from 2011 to 2014, I was a research epidemiologist at Marshfield Clinic, uh, which is a small clinic in central Wisconsin. And this clinic is really special because they do the the yearly vaccine effectiveness estimates for flu vaccine, um, along with four other sites uh, across the U.S. Uh, So that's where I, I got my start in infectious disease epidemiology. Uh, I got my PhD in infectious disease epidemiology at the University of Minnesota uh, in 2018. I've been doing a couple of postdocs and uh, being a respiratory virus epidemiologist during uh, this really unusual pandemic time has been, it's been interesting in about a hundred different ways. What are a couple of those ways? (laughs) One of the biggest ones is that, you know, we infectious disease epidemiologists have been beating the drum for quite a while now about the risk of a, a pandemic due to a respiratory virus. Uh, we kind of all assumed that that would be influenza because we know influenza has very clear demonstrated pandemic potential. Uh, I I find myself wishing that, you know, more of my classes and, and more of the conference symposia uh, and more of the discussion in general had focused on coronaviruses because I think it, you know, in retrospect, it is quite clear that they also had pandemic potential. Mm-hmm. So we're reaching a point in the pandemic where, particularly in the U.S., with increased access and increased uptake of vaccines, a lot of the restrictions are being lifted. So I wanted to get your thoughts on the shift in guidance and your thoughts on, for example, increases in travel or relaxing of restrictions at this point. It's, it's challenging to say, well, you know, like, oh, they're, they're good or, oh, they're bad. I mean, obviously, as we've seen, this pandemic is, is very complex and the situation is constantly changing. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't want to be my sort of standard fun police and say, oh, you know, we really need to continue to be careful. Um, I, I think relaxing of restrictions is a very important component of, uh, uh, you know, the the timeline of this pandemic response, when we have a lot of people vaccinated, when we have low community level transmission, that's when we can feel comfortable to like relax some of these components. But I think what's happening in Australia right now with uh, outbreaks due to the Delta variant, despite extremely strong contact tracing strategies and con- other pandemic control strategies, that really illustrates to us like the, the importance of staying vigilant even when uh, it kind of feels like we're done with the pandemic, because the pandemic ultimately is not quite done with us yet. So I think, you know, it's a little bit of like, you know, yes, cautious optimism, right? I mean, if, if there's no community level transmission, if we have an extremely, extremely highly vaccinated population, then we should uh, be able to relax some of these restrictions. But we have to have that infrastructure in place to support that relaxation. So we have to have the infrastructure that supports contact tracing, that supports PPE for essential workers and for healthcare workers, um, you know, that gives us all of these other sort of lines of defense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the Delta variant. Could you talk a little bit more about any 
increased risk or kind of what, how that's changing the situation in certain areas? Yeah, so the Delta variant, like some other variants of concern, has shown uh, an increased transmission. And so it's really very challenging to think of this variant in terms of what we already know about COVID, right? We've, we've structured our pandemic response to a version of this virus that was less transmissible than what we're seeing now. And uh, we've also structured our vaccines to that version of the virus. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it's really important, again, to remain kind of flexible and agile towards these changing environments. Delta variant is a good example of a, a variant that is more transmissible and therefore could cause a lot more havoc than the original version of this virus. And so, again, this is kind of like a, another like really good reason for us to then make sure as we relax restrictions that we have all of these other control and protection mechanisms in place. That's very helpful. The Delta variant is also coming at a time when, for example, in the U.S., people are really talking much more about travel, especially families that maybe have been staying home, being very careful for the last 15 months or so. And so they're feeling like with relaxing restrictions, with increased vaccines, that they can take vacations, especially maybe with school-aged children during the summer. Mm -hmm. What advice would you have for a family that's trying to decide whether they should be traveling? Oh, this is the tough one, right? And, and a lot of these circumstances are going to be really context specific. Like a like a three hour car ride to grandma's house is a different travel environment than like, you know, an international flight that lasts uh, 12 hours, let's say, or, you know, more than one international flight. The things that are really important to keep in, in mind when we're thinking about how to travel safely are let's kind of keep stock of all of the tools that we have to prevent COVID-19 transmission to us and from us, right? So, you know, to us would include like, uh, if we're all eligible, let's make sure that all of us are fully vaccinated before we travel. That's a huge, uh, you know, chunk of peace of mind right there. Uh, but then also considering, you know, if there is a Delta variant circulating in, in the community that we're in or the community that we're about to travel to or any community along the way, that poses an additional risk that you know was not part of the original sort of pandemic control and response strategies, right? So it's really good, again, to have those additional measures in place. Um, that includes masking, that includes hand washing, that includes trying to limit your time indoors with other people, that includes trying to improve ventilation, these kinds of things as well. And then just kind of keeping in mind that whatever community you might be visiting may be more vulnerable than you. Vaccine equity has been a huge problem in our pandemic response. I'd say most places outside of the U.S. do not have the same access to vaccines that Americans do. And so we cannot expect other communities to be behaving in the way that people can uh, sometimes behave in, in the U.S. Um, with reductions in pandemic control strategies. So I think it's also really, really important when you're traveling to consider the risk you might be posing to others and try to limit that as much as possible. Good point and good advice for, for people planning that, especially with international travel. With those countries that are opening borders or relaxing restrictions for fully vaccinated individuals from certain countries, including the U.S., would those be situations in which travel would be maybe less of a concern? even though the communities that people are going into might still have more restrictions or might have lower vaccine access? 
So one example could be um, the U.S. and Canada. There's a lot of, you know, in normal times, there's a lot of cross-border commuting as well as, you know, sort of travel for vacation purposes. And I would say the majority of the Canadian population lives pretty close to the U.S.-Canada border. So for Americans uh, that are traveling to Canada, for example, if they're allowed to enter the country... (laughs) They need to consider the fact that um, they may have had an opportunity to be fully vaccinated, whereas someone in the area that they're traveling to may not have had that opportunity yet. Vaccine rollout has been a little bit slower in Canada compared to the U.S. Depending on the community that they're going to, it might have a really high prevalence of people who have been on the short end with regard to vaccine equity. So this includes people of color, um, as well as people who are working what I call essential jobs and what we call essential jobs, but then we fail to sort of support the essential nature of those jobs with PPE, with vaccines, et cetera. Right. So kind of an overall like assumption that because Canada is a rich country and because uh, there are access to vaccines in Canada, that the risk to Americans versus Canadians is the same. I don't think that that's correct. Mm-hmm. The risk, for example, uh, in, a, in a bigger city versus a smaller community, also not comparable. And so these are kind of like these unique components that are really context specific that I think people really do need to investigate. Mm-hmm. Sure. That's something that hopefully people will be looking at. Kind of shifting it slightly, when we're thinking about families traveling, you mentioned that if people are eligible, they should be getting vaccinated. There have been fewer opportunities potentially for younger people to get vaccinated since the three vaccines that have been authorized in the U.S. were primarily authorized for ages 18 and up. Mm-hmm. There's one vaccine that's been approved for 12 to 15, which is the Pfizer-BioNTech. Moderna filed for emergency use authorization for their vaccine for that same age range recently. Do you expect that vaccine to also get authorized for younger adolescents? Um, it's it's tough to know uh, without seeing the documentation from the EUA application whether it's likely to be you know to get an EUA authorization or not, and and luckily for me that decision is um, above my pay grade and it's made by um, wonderful folks at FDA, including uh, the people that serve on the VERPAC committee. It's the Vaccines and Related Biologic Products uh, uh, Advisory Committee. Um, That being said, I mean, there are obvious advantages to making sure that children can be vaccinated. One of those is that children are what we call high degree nodes in contact networks. So this means that when we mix together in groups of people, when people sort of like have different contacts, children, especially children under five, are the people in a population that tend to have the most number of contacts. And that makes sense. They, They have a bunch of friends. They have their parents and their other family members. They might have grandparents. They might have people at daycare. There's a lot of other, you know, sort of social interactions that children tend to have. And when when we talk about COVID-19 in children, you know, I, I think the evidence would suggest that severe disease is not as much of a concern for COVID as it is for something like influenza or RSV, which is another respiratory virus. But thinking from a population perspective, they do still play a really important role in pandemic control because they are kind of super, super high uh, contact individuals, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that's another really good reason to make sure that vaccines are available to to children and and adolescents in particular. Um, So I've got my fingers crossed that that works out for Moderna. 
that would be great. Certainly giving more people access to preventive measures seems like it can mostly only be good. Yeah. <laughs> sort of related to that, there have been a few reports and CDC came out with on an MMWR last week about some reports of heart inflammation, uh, myocarditis and pericarditis in uh, younger people, especially, I believe, young men under 16 mm-hmm. after receipt of one of the mRNA vaccines. Could you offer some insights on this and why it might be happening? So I think one of the most logical things is to ask, what is myocarditis? For those who may not be familiar with this term, it is an inflammation of heart muscle. Um, Pericarditis is very similar. It's inflammation of the area around the heart. What we know about myocarditis is that it is not completely unheard of. Um, And it happens, we know that it happens after infection with respiratory viruses. So for example, we know that myocarditis can be caused by influenza infection, so much so that we can consider influenza vaccine to almost be a vaccine against heart attacks. Wow. So so this is a really very strong, very well-known relationship between influenza virus and myocarditis. We know that other respiratory viruses can cause myocarditis, including COVID-19 infection. So people can get myocarditis after COVID-19 infection. Outcomes of myocarditis after mRNA vaccination, specifically in younger adults, specifically in younger males, are extremely rare but they're absolutely worth investigating, right? Because we have to compare the risk of getting myocarditis after COVID-19 or the risk of other bad outcomes from COVID-19 infection uh, to this outcome of, uh, you know, that could be associated with a vaccine that's currently being investigated. Another really important thing to know about myocarditis is that usually people that have myocarditis, especially younger people, after their symptoms improve, they can usually return to their just normal daily life. And we know that's not always the case for people who have COVID-19 infection. In fact, it's quite common for people that recover from COVID-19 to have longer term effects that could last for an unknown length of time. Mm -hmm. So again, this is kind of one very good example of like how it's important to balance this sort of risk that we are currently investigating versus the known risk of myocarditis and other severe outcomes in this age group in particular due to COVID-19. Right. So what the CDC says right now while they're investigating this is that they're continuing to recommend vaccination for everyone 12 years and up because the risk of COVID-19 illnesses and related complications is so high, even in this younger age group. Just linking that back to the Moderna filing, do you think that these reports of heart inflammation on younger people who would fall into the age group that would newly be eligible for Moderna, do you think that's going to play a role in the approval process for Moderna? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I absolutely think it will. So for EUA authorization... The, the value of the evidence, the, the kind of the weight of the evidence has to be such that the benefits outweigh the risks. Um, and one of the risks could be um, this myocarditis outcome that, that seems like, you know, once your symptoms subside, you can kind of go back to normal daily activities. That's something that is going to be sort of balanced with the potential benefit of vaccination in this population. And so that will certainly be weighed 
it's my opinion, and I suspect it will be the opinion of uh, the VRPAC committee as well, that the, the benefits still outweigh the risks. But that's something that they'll, they'll have to decide sort of a priori, explicitly. So it sounds like if a parent of an adolescent or if you had an adolescent was asking for your advice, you would still suggest that they get their, their kid vaccinated with one of these vaccines, should it be authorized. Yes. If I had a child who was 12 or up, I would still, I would still have them get vaccinated. You know, I, I think it's absolutely completely understandable to feel a little nervous about it, to have questions, to want those questions answered. And there actually are quite a good number of answers to those questions on the CDC website and on uh, the Emory website as well. You guys have been doing a wonderful job. But, you know, it's also helpful to like maybe have a conversation with your with your doctor, with your child's doctor, if you have more questions. It's, it's important for us to say, hey, like that's normal and understandable that you have questions. We as scientists should should be more understanding of that than anyone else, because that's all we do is ask questions and try to answer them. So I, I think that's really important to acknowledge. Um, but it's possible to answer those questions. Talking about travel with young people and then talking about young people getting vaccinated. It's kind of a natural next question to ask if you have any thoughts about the return to school in the fall or young people returning to school in person in the fall. The existing data support, again, that children are these what we call high degree nodes in contact networks. That means that they just come in contact with a lot of people and they tend to to facilitate the spread of respiratory viruses in populations as a result of that. Existing uh, good evidence indicates that children above the age of 10 can uh, transmit this virus potentially as efficiently as adults, even if they are at reduced risk for these severe outcomes. Existing evidence does indicate that children can have severe outcomes, and that can be very, very scary for parents. Again, it's not the same sort of frequency or prevalence as in older age groups, but I know that um, you know we may have a different risk tolerance also for the people that are our children. So these are things that kind of are on my mind as we're discussing, you know, back to school. I think that if we if we do wind up going back to school in person, again we need to have this perspective that it's not just about vaccination. We need to use every tool in our toolbox. So that includes improved ventilation in schools. That may include things like cohorting. Um, that certainly includes things like regular, extremely easily accessible testing uh, and very high quality contact tracing in the event that an infection in a school does occur. You know, obviously at some point we will be back in school in person. We need to make sure that we can do that in the, the safest possible way. Mm-hmm. So should, should there be a vaccine available to, if possible, get that vaccine before going back to school in person? Yeah. Well, great. Thank you so much. This was very helpful. You're more than welcome.